Hi, I'm Mark from Annandale, New Jersey. I'm Eric from Durham, North Carolina. I'm Charlie Todd from New York City. The Sound of Young America is an independent production. Supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Gary Hustwit, is a documentary director whose first film, Helvetica, was about that most dynamic of subjects, uh, the font. And his new film is a follow-up that takes the long view on the world of design, or the broad view, um, called Objectified, in which he he interfaces with some of the biggest names in design to talk about what design is, uh, how it's done, and why it matters. Uh, Gary, welcome to the Sound of Young America. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jesse. I want to start with Helvetica, a movie I, I really enjoyed um, and, and felt like I learned a lot from. I think if you went into a film financier's office, per- even the, a film financier who was a film financier of documentary films, which admittedly have a marginal appeal on the face of it, and said... Guess what I'm going to make a documentary about? A font. <laughs> I, w- I would have been laughed out of the uh, out of the room. Probably. Exactly. So, what gave you the bravado to think that you you could make a film about something so static and generally unappreciated? <laughs> um, I guess I, probably because I didn't think of it as static, and I I really appreciated um, good graphic design and and, and typography. And really, just wanted to see a, a documentary about about those things. <laughs> so I, I guess I, I, I'm I'm my own target market um, in a way. So I, I figured that if I wanted to see something like that, then there were probably other people out there who who wanted to see it. Mm-hmm. And and I, I couldn't believe that there hadn't already been a, a you, know, you know cinematic documentary about about um, graphic design either. So once I kind of realized that, then I was just uh, kind of obsessed and and just had to had to make it um what what part of it made you think that it could make a film what was special about the font helvetica um well you know i I live um, most of the time in in new york city and if you've ever ridden the new york city subway that's the the font that most of the signs are, are are in so it was just one of these things where you know just kind of you know, commuting to work and looking around and kind of realizing how this one typeface was everywhere. But mostly Helvetica was kind of a structure that I could use to talk to a lot of graphic designers and type designers about about what they do, because everybody sort of has an opinion about it, either either for it or, or against it. So it was really um, a, a structure in a way. And and it, it didn't hurt that it's everywhere. I mean, it's the logos of just hundreds and hundreds of different companies, and the U.S. government uses it for all the you know our tax forms and everything are, are in Helvetica. So that was um, one layer, I guess, of just like kind of this eye-opening moment of like, holy Christ, it's it's everywhere. But um, but also then using it as a way to talk to um, typographers and graphic designers about what they do. A font is sort of the ultimate design exercise because it is both uh, so important and so meaningful and both uh, and also completely abstract. Um, 
what part of the story of design did you feel like you could tell by looking at a, a typeface? Well, you know, I, I think most people kind of don't, really don't even notice the typeface of, of the, the text that they're reading. And there are so many different ways that type can express, you know, an emotion or an opinion or a slant um, or, or not do that or just kind of try to be invisible. And um, and there, there are so many, at least I think, amazing uh, people who who do this, who 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 spend, who slave over, you know, the tiniest little detail on a lowercase a, you know, how how the top part of it's going to curve or, or something, and it's just this whole kind of you know world of of people that that really do think a lot about these things. So um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to show that world um, in a sense, and. You know, I, I think it's it's one of those things that once you notice it, once you notice, really think about the differences between different um, fonts, then you can't ever, you know, go back to not noticing it. I, I tend to like these these subjects that um, or these things that we take for granted, but then when you really look at them and and or you talk to the people that that just obsess over them all day long, then you see this whole kind of other world um, behind that thing. Let's hear a quick clip from Helvetica. This is typographer Eric Speakerman. Well, I'm obviously a typomaniac, which is, which is an incurable, if not uh, mortal disease. Um, I can't explain it. I just, I just like looking at type. I just get a total kick out of it. They are my friends. You know, other people look at bottles of wine or whatever, or you know, girls' bottoms. I get kicks out of looking at type. It's a little worrying, I must admit, but it's a very nerdish thing to do. I'm very much a word person. So that's why typography for me is the obvious extension. It just makes my words visible. How did looking at all these questions within the context of typefaces start to change the way that you looked at other things in your life? <laughs> um, well, for a while, they changed just the way I looked at anything because I couldn't stop looking at the at the font, <laughs> um, which is, um, you know, I think it's referred to as typomania. It's just it's a, it's a disease. Uh, where you don't even read the message, you know, you first you try to identify what what font it is before you even read what it's saying. So um, if you spend, I spent two years during the making of Helvetica just looking for Helvetica um, wherever I went, just either to film it or or you know just um, just out of habit. And that took me a while to really um, to, to that was a, a tough habit to kick. At what point in that did you develop the ability to distinguish between Helvetica and Ariel? Ooh, um, I mean, I, I think when I started the film, I, I definitely had like cheat sheets of, of Ariel or um, or uh, Universe or Univer, um, Franklin Gothic, a few of the other ones that that um, that are that are that are close. After a while, it, it, there are just some really distinctive features to Helvetica, but also <laughs> also there's a feeling. There, and, and that, People get really angry about Ariel. Yeah, yeah. I, I mentioned that I was interviewing you. I think I got four people sent me a message asking about Ariel. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a whole other uh, that's a whole other story. But uh, but after a while, you know, there's a there's a kind of a feeling that 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 a typeface gives off, and 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 that's what you end up picking up on um, when you start looking at them a lot. Um, there's just a kind of a characteristic that that Helvetica has that I, I can spot it, you know, a mile away now. Once you got over your uh, typomania, 
um, and possibly any other manias you may have had, such as Legomania. Um, I'm trying to think of any other manias. Legomania, that's when you're a Legomaniac. Um, <laughs> pyromania. Yeah, sure, pyromania. Um, so once you, once you got over these horrible uh, mental conditions that you were suffering from, um, did you start to think about uh, the process, the people behind uh, the things that were in your life, the design of things? You know, I, I I think it definitely made me more aware of of those things. Um, again, it's it's like looking at those things that you take for granted that you use every day: your toothbrush or your coffee maker or your you know. In fact, the film Objectified opens with a montage of uh, someone waking up uh, that focuses in on each designed object that they interact with over the course of that h- half an hour. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, just before, you, between the time you wake up and when you leave the house, you've probably touched a hundred different objects. And uh, I invite people to try to count <laughs> the the number of things that you touch because it's, it's it's crazy. Um, and and we're at the stage where we don't even really think about it or, or question it or or give any consideration to, you know, how much of our environment is is made up of manufactured objects and and therefore well you know what about the people who who make these things and you know how is what they how does what they do uh, again sort of affect us in our in our daily lives so um yeah i just had this just this vision i guess of trying to trying to show that in a in a montage like how many things we really do um come into contact with in in, in an average day what were the questions you had as a non-designer, as a filmmaker and former journalist and whatnot? Um, what were the questions you had uh, about um, how things were made that you, that you thought you could answer in a film? Well, again, for for me, it, it, a big part of it is process. is is sort of watch, kind of getting behind the the object and seeing kind of the story behind it. And hearing that story or the the kind of inspiration for that design from the designer, I, I guess I'm just I, I I'm sort of fascinated by that that stuff. Period. And then you know really really looking at all the kind of stages that you know an iPhone or whatever you know a product like that, all the stages that it would go through from kind of you know conception to to the shelves, but then also, you know, us, you know, as we used it and then what happens after, um, after we use it and how is that part of the design? How, how is the kind of disposal of this, um, this object, uh, factored into the design from the very beginning? There's so many things within that, that those relationships, consumerism, materialism, um, yeah, environmental issues, um, capitalism. I mean, everything is and art and creativity. It's all wound up in there. So um, that's. I, I guess I wanted to try to explore that um, in the in the in the you know the structure of a of a seventy five minute film. Here's a clip from Objectified. When you see an object, you make so many assumptions about that object in seconds. What it does, how well it's going to do it, how much you think it should cost. The object testifies to the people that conceived it, developed it, manufactured it. Sometimes we know who these designers are, sometimes we don't. But anything that's touched by man, is transformed by man, is by its very nature design. 
Ultimately, my job as a designer is to look into the future. You know, my job is about what's going to happen, not what has happened. All these physical objects in our lives, there's no real critique on them. Very, very little discussion on how these things really, really affect us. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Gary Hustwit, whose new film is called Objectified. You talk with um, designers from all over the world in uh, the film, and I, I'd like to talk with you, uh, talk a, a little bit about a, a few of them and, and their different approaches. You mentioned uh, the design of the iPod or Apple. I think if there's any technology design thing institution that reigns supreme it's obviously apple who've built their business around um design and uh aesthetics i thought it was interesting that you talked with apple's chief designer or at least showed in the film talking with apple's chief designer um as much about the process of making things as about the famous aesthetics of an iPod or a MacBook or something like that. He talks about the machinery mm-hmm. behind it. Was that something that surprised you when you talked to him, that he wanted to talk about that? Well, yeah, because, I mean, I, I think that's a big part of the sort of secret of, of Apple is that they spend as much time designing the kind of manufacturing systems that enable them to make the objects as they do designing the actual objects themselves. You can't have one without the other. You can't just wake up one day and decide to make the MacBook Air without first designing a way to manufacture the thing. So I, I think that is part of their secret. I think the other thing is that, that design is um it's top down there. It's you know, from Steve Jobs on down. It's not uh, a bunch of executives in a in a boardroom um, or marketing people dictating what the product is going to be and then throwing it down to the design department and say, here, make make us this thing or make us a thing like these other guys, these, the competition has. Um, it really does start uh, with, desi- with, with design thinking and design innovation there as the key, and then everything flows from that. You show uh, in the film uh, the beginnings of a design uh, process. I think it's around toothbrushes um, and oral hygiene, uh, that most friendly of subjects. <laughs> um, and it's about solutions to the, to the problems of oral hygiene, which is once teeth get dirty and if they're cleaner, then they get better. Um, it's not about things like visual appeal in a retail context. Well, I think it, it is in some in some cases. I think in the, in the example that we were looking at in the film, it was really about um, looking at the sort of brainstorming process and an innovation process given a, a sort of a challenge, which was what's the future? You know, what's the new toothbrush? What you know? How can you reinvent the toothbrush? You know, the way that that industrial design and product design that process the product of problem-solving, um, you know, methodology of industrial design ha- has sort of evolved into now what is just called design thinking or innovation design. And part of that creative process uh, in terms of, like, looking at a, a particular design challenge is really thinking, well, well, do we even need this, this a new toothbrush? How, you know, what's the real question here? 
Um, is a question, how do we, how can we get people to brush their teeth, uh, more? Or how do we sell more toothbrushes? Or do we even need the toothbrush? Um, what are ways that, that we can, uh, um, you know, um, really just, you know, make oral care a better experience so that maybe we don't need the, to throw away billions of toothbrushes every year? Um, are there ways that we can, we can change that scenario? And so that's what I was kind of interested in and, and, and why we, we featured that bit in the film. It wasn't so much let's look at toothbrushes. It was, it was more let's look at the kind of thought process that is behind um, these designers and, and how can that thought process be, really be applied to other areas besides just product design. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Clark Boyd here, host of the World's Technology Podcast. For four and a half years, I've worked in obscurity, overshadowed by the gadget junkies, the fanboys, the uber geeks. You see, people hate my podcast because, well, I don't talk about iPhones or any other sorts of gadgets and gizmos. In fact, it's the gadgets and gizmos that don't interest me. Now, the people around the world who use them to do cool things, that does interest me. Oh, and I also like bagpipes. Anyway, maybe all of that will interest you, too. Check out the World's Technology Podcast, brought to you by the BBC, Public Radio International, and WGBH Radio in Boston. Find out more at theworld.org slash technology. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Gary Hustwit, who you may know as the creator of the typeface documentary Helvetica. His new film is all about design and our interaction with the stuff that surrounds us every day. It's called Objectified. A lot of friendly questions start like this, I have to assure you, but I'm no Marxist, Gary. Um, <laughs> but uh, one thing that I found myself wondering watching the film was... Um, you highlighted a, a lot of people with, um, wonderful intentions in terms of, uh, developing sustainability and so on and so forth. Um, and, and what I wondered as a non-Marxist, as a capitalist was whether the, whether the rewards system was messed up, whether there was something broken at the beginning, um, that made it so that the the uh, parameters of the problem that desi designers were solving were wrong. So that, you know, sustainability is a wonderful ideal, but, um, you know, one wonders if it will really be built into things if the motivator is altruism. Hmm. Probably not, um, you know, because I think it still comes down to to kind of a dollars and cents um, motivation. You know, in in a way, we've kind of yeah, we've had a broken system for for a long time because the 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 manufacturers of all these products sort of get a free ride on the on the on the end. Um, they make the things, but then once they're out in the world, they're like, hey, that's you know, you know, not our problem, public takes care of it, you know, government takes care of disposing it. And that there's a cost for raw materials and, and there's a there's a need to uh, conserve on the front end but but not on the back end. Sure. 
Like IKEA gets its stuff cheap because they use as few parts as possible and they use make it with fiberboard and blah 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 blah. There's no cost to IKEA at the end when it breaks after <laughs> two years. Sure, sure, sure. So I mean that that's part of. I mean in in Europe there are more. Um, there are these you know take back laws that have, that have. Uh, kind of come up on the books where where if you make a refrigerator and after that refrigerator is broken well you as the or or it's you know doesn't work anymore um you know it's ended its useful uh life then you've got to take that back the company has got to take that that product back and and i think you find that when um companies are forced to to take the things back and and disassemble them or get rid of them suddenly the design of the product to start with um, f- will facilitate that a lot easier if they're the ones that are responsible for it. So that's a, you know, it's it's hard in this economy because nobody wants to talk about, you know, any kind of barriers to, to, to selling things and to companies being profitable right now. It's about let's, you know, get back on track and, you know, have government incentives to buy cars and just buy, buy, buy. It's, um, it's, it's uh, I think, Probably a, not a very popular time to think of, uh, of of putting more restrictions on on companies, but you know there are so many um, ways that I think probably that that we as as taxpayers end up paying for uh, the the you know poorly designed and poorly manufactured um, products that uh, that we don't re- really think about. There was a really interesting answer to this. Um profligacy of objects in uh, that was presented in your film, which is that you interviewed uh, a couple who do something that I did not even realize existed as a thing. They do design as fine art. You know, maybe design is supposed to be specifically for use. And in fact, I, I think um, maybe it was a response to their general artiness um, and the sort of, you know, self-justification discourse that goes on in the world of fine art. But my palette, I went to see the movie with, was like angry at them. <laughs> uh, this couple that do fine art design. And, you and know, I found myself thinking, like, in a funny way, though, isn't that a way to engage the ideas of design and the process of design without making more crap? Yeah, no, I think I, I, I agree. And, and in a sense, they're not really doing it as fine art. Rather, they're doing it as our as kind of criticism, but but through actually making things. I mean, they don't sell those things. They're not like in, you know, Sotheby's or or something getting auctioned off. They make these films about interactions with the one. The example you had had a robot in it. I don't remember it very specifically, so you'll have <laughs> to clarify. Obviously, <laughs> it's about using these kind of theoretical. Um, objects or products to, to kind of explore the different ways that, that we can or, or maybe will be interacting with different objects in, in the future. And that was my main kind of um, reason for having them in the film. I like the fact that there are people who are thinking about this stuff because, you know, in 20 years, we're going to look back at, at our iPhones and we'll just, we'll be laughing. We'll be able to remember the little screen we touched and we stretched out the images and ha ha ha, wasn't that, you know, quaint. Um, because I think there there are so there's so much 
um, more in terms of the way we can interact with with objects that is we're, we're, we don't can't even conceive of yet. So I, I like the fact that there are people kind of making these experimental objects and 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 there's there's a, also a real a playfulness in, in what they do too, which again makes us hopefully reconsider or at least think about how we do interact with all these objects every day. Maybe you have an insight into this. What's the deal with all the chairs? Why, why does everybody make chairs? Don't we have enough? Don't we have a good handle on the chair at this point? Yeah. I mean, there's chair, there's beanbag chair, there's ergonomic chair. Nobody likes beanbag chair or ergonomic chair. So we're just going to stick with chair, right? What's wrong with chair? I, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of designers about it. And in, in some ways, I think it's sort of like a rite of passage or something. Like everyone, every designer has to do a chair. Um, you know, obviously, it's it's one of the most universal objects. We all sit on them every day, um, and it's kind of a you know, at least a, in a Western context. Sure, and I think that's an interesting thing to look at look at too. But um, y- you know, yeah, how many millions of of chairs have been designed, and yet there are still really uncomfortable chairs being made, <laughs> which which kind of doesn't doesn't make sense, but. Um, yeah, it's that and then uh lights too. I think every designer designs some sort of a lamp or lighting fixture at 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 some point. Is this just because designers just sit around in a chair looking at a piece of paper under a lamp? <laughs> you know, it's it's uh the, the you know, the thing that I that I that I guess I I've I figured out about about designers or at least good designers is that this ability to kind of envision things that don't exist and, and this kind of urge to, to make those things um, and or to look at a situation or a challenge in a different way and see that in their in their head and then actually kind of go through the steps to make it. So, you know, uh, a lot of times I think that designers kind of have an aesthetic or a way of seeing the world or a philosophy about about um, you know the things that they want to create, and then then it's uh, you know sometimes them going through different media and and objectifying that philosophy, making it into different things like a chair or a car or a toothbrush or or whatever it is or whatever they they're envisioning. So I think it's about kind of an aesthetic that they're then kind of um, you know exercising in different in different ways in different forms. Well, Gary, thank you so much for being on the San Diego Mary. It was really great to have you on the show. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Jesse. Gary Hustwitz's new film is called Objectified. He's touring it, in fact, all over the world. He's on his way to Korea right <laughs> now. Uh, you can find out more, including if a screening might be coming to a theater near you at objectifiedfilm.com. Um, it will also be airing on public television as part of Independent Lens in the early winter. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our editor is Nick White. Our music provided by Dan Wally. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you will find not only the Sound of Young America, but also our other awesome programs like Jordan Jesse Go, our freewheeling comedy talk show. If you have thoughts about the show, you can email me, my email address, my actual email address. It's the same one my mom uses to email me is jesse j-e-s-s-e at maximumfund.org we'll see you next time right here on the sound of young america